Braver Angels presents Uniting America. I'm your host, John Wood Jr. The mainstream ideologies of the American left and right, I would argue, are shifting. As a kid in the 90s and a teenage activist in the early 2000s, I can remember left and right in this country generally defined by commitments to greater regulation and a stronger social safety net on the one hand, and by lower taxes and a freer economy on the other. Many look back on the 90s as the heyday of, quote, neoliberalism and the dominance of a Clinton-led Democratic Party establishment that was comfortably enmeshed with corporate power. With the invasion of Iraq in the early 2000s, there was added to this an anti-war movement on the left versus a resurgent so-called neoconservatism on the right that sought to advance liberty abroad through military intervention and nation-building, the politics of Dick Cheney and George W. Bush. The Obama Tea Party years, of course, would greatly sharpen our cultural divisions. From 2008 to 2016, polarization hit new depths, with many feeling that identity politics were on the rise. But in my estimation, it was with the Trump and now Biden era that we have come to see a left and right divide in our country in which the traditional domestic and foreign policy arguments while they still remain highly relevant, of course, have increasingly uh, given way a bit to a different issue set entirely. We now stand in the era of the culture wars, where the arguments are less over taxes and regulation and increasingly more over how we ought to overhaul the structures of a, let's say, patriarchal white supremacist society versus how we root out the, oh, I don't know, the reverse racism and gender relativism of a leftism bent on destroying everything good about America. This is how I see the sides as coming to see themselves, or rather to see each other. It is in this context that I find myself speaking to Yoram Hazoni. Hazoni is an Israeli-American scholar and philosopher who is a foremost thinker in the national conservatism movement. He is controversial, without question, with many believing that he represents a shift in conservative thinking that veers away from fundamental tenets of long-standing mainstream liberal and conservative assumptions in America. And, as you will hear in our conversation, those critics are not necessarily wrong. This sometimes also bleeds into a description of Hazoni and others in the national conservatism sphere, which likens their philosophy to that of the right-wing nationalists like Richard Spencer and others who wish to see the USA become, in essence, a white ethno-state. Now, in Hazoni's case, at least, I would like to say that this seems to be quite wrong, but you will hear what he has to say about it. I wanted to get to know Yoram Hazoni. I wanted to hear his arguments from his own mouth and get a clear sense of the essentials of his philosophy. I do press him to respond to certain historical and philosophical points of my own, but this is a philosopher's conversation about how we ought to be thinking about America in terms of her relationship to pluralism, religion, and how we really ought to understand the teachings of the Founding Fathers. In some sense, Azoni represents a new right in America that parallels the rise of a new left that, while they are bitterly opposed to each other, do share some common ground in their aversion to certain assumptions that were all but taken for granted as default commitments of mainstream liberalism and conservatism not many years ago. You'll hear Yoram acknowledge some of that in our talk. I enjoyed this conversation and think that you will too. And now, Yoram Hazon. Yoram Hazoni, welcome to Uniting America, my friend. How are you? Uh, very good. Pleasure to be there with you in, in Los Angeles or... <laughs> <laughs> the next closest thing by Zoom. There you go. There you go. Well, from Jerusalem to uh, to L.A., it is great to make this connection. And uh, yeah, you know, just really, uh, really, really gratifying to get the opportunity to speak to somebody 
directly, uh, who so many people have so many things to uh, to say about <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Rizzoni. Um, that, that was that was very nicely put. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it is uh, on, on, on some level, um, it is a it is a compliment, uh, regardless of what you know connotations or implications may seem to be loaded into it. Because um, you know, uh, just just being impactful says, uh, I think, uh, a little something um, about about the the fact that you're wrestling with extremely important issues and making arguments that you know whether they're resonating with people or triggering people, <laughs> you know, are clearly pointing us in directions where you know we need to be engaging our our mental energies and so. So I um I wanted to have something of a philosophical conversation with you. Um, I want to get to know you better. I want to understand, uh, sort of cut through the muck of what people say about you to understand, you know, who you actually are and, and what you actually believe. And so um, I do have a simple opening question that might help us to accomplish this a little bit to start off. You are somebody who people uh, uh, closely closely associate uh, with the term with the term nationalism. What is your definition of nationalism and is it what is meant by others when they embrace the phrase blood and soil nationalism? What is the difference between what you represent and what other people may mean by that term, if anything? Okay, well, in 2018, I I published a book called The Virtue of Nationalism. Hmm. And uh, for anybody who's interested in the sort of uh, in the long playing version of the argument with all the footnotes and the historical references, you can go to the, go to the book. Uh, but as you're asking me for the simple version, so the simple version is that um, the, in most times and places, the word nationalism is historically uh, referred to a principled, you know, political theory that sees the world as governed best when many nations are independent, when when they have national freedom to uh, chart their own course on the basis of their own traditions and their own interests. Mm-hmm. And uh, this this term nationalism has sort of reappeared on the scene in a big way uh, in uh, after 2016, after uh, the the Brexit, uh, the, the, the vote for British independence called called Brexit. And then after that, the uh, the uh, the the Trump movement and the Trump administration. Um, so at at this point, uh, I think I think uh, nationalist conservatives that this this idea of nationalist conservatism has has become much much stronger over these years. And uh, you know, in addition to President Trump, Ron DeSantis is uh, is you know is is for sure. Uh, Roughly of this kind of uh, worldview, and um, we, we have you know Georgia Maloney, who uh, is now the prime minister in Italy, and she, she she has very similar views on lots of things. So the 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 bottom line is what what these you know very different politicians um, have in common is that all of them are pushing to uh, to move away from the uh, the new world order of George H.W. Bush, this theory, mm. sometimes it's called globalism. Um, but I, I think we call it liberal internationalism. The, the, the theory that the best kind of order for the world would be uh, if there's a single rule of law mm. that kind of you know wraps the whole globe or as many countries as possible. Uh, and that that was that was you know, kind of a 
a dominant political theory in, um, you know, from the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, 1990, um, through 2016. So there there really was an entire generation where uh, both Republicans and Democrats and uh, most of the major political parties in in Britain and in Europe uh, all supported this idea of taking down the borders Mm. um, and uh, allowing uh, free flow of of goods and services and and populations to move around. It was kind of like this utopian dream. It didn't work out so well. And uh, now now we have a, you know, a, a, a conservative nationalist uh, resistance in, um, you know, in, in, in most Western countries. Mm. And it's, it's won elections in some places. I, I, I think an awful lot of people, if they, uh, uh, if they, they get into the subject, they'll, they'll find that it's, uh, it's not as far away from the things they believe as they might think. Mm. Indeed. Well, the second part of the question is, is that distinct from what people mean when they use the phrase sort of blood and soil nationalism? And and, and my understanding of that second uh, phrase is that it is tied to sort of, uh, you know, sort of a, a centering sort of, you know, ethnic or kind of racial sovereignty um, over a piece of land. And of course, in the United States of America, you know, we can associate that with various, uh, you know, movements who, you know, sort of believe that, you know, they have something of a racial claim to, you know, a general sort of, a general sort of hegemony in, in American, uh, in American life. But the reason I bring that up is simply because I think for people looking at this conversation way from the outside, right, there's just a tendency to lump all of these things, you know, together under a similar, you know, under a similar term, right? And so, you think, well, you know, conservative nationalism, oh, that sounds like, you know, you know, most conservatives are white, kind of sounds like white nationalism and so forth. So, I mean, I mean, I'm inviting you, you know, I'm inviting you to, to address that association if you if you care to do so. OK, well, look, the expression blood and soil is is uh, it, it it comes from from Germany, from 19th century uh, German politics. Mm. And the you know, as I wrote in in the book, uh, the, the Germans have a very, very. Um, peculiar place in the discussion of nationalism, because yeah. if we're, you know, if we're thinking about a world of independent nations, uh, this is this is an idea that you know goes all the way back to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and it you know it it appears um, it usually is kind of a, a counterbalance against the you know the Roman political inheritance, which mm. you know basically is about like. You know, conquering the whole world and being bringing peace and prosperity by right. uh, by imposing a single imperial rule, mm. and um, th- so th- there are certain peoples that um, that have over the centuries that have adopted the this biblical Hebraic uh, inheritance, and and so they believe in a world of independent nations as kind of like the 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 main thread of uh, uh of their political tradition mm-hmm. and that that includes uh western european countries like um uh, uh the the dutch the french the english the scots and and later the americans i'm not saying that you know that any of these peoples was free of imperialism but mm-hmm. uh but the, but the strain of a world of independent nations is always very very strong uh in 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 those places um, by the way, in, in Eastern Europe, also among the Poles and the Hungarians and, uh, and other peoples, you also find this where you don't find it so much 
is uh, is among the Germans mm. because uh, the, the the Germans were uh, the strongest people uh, in Europe, and for many centuries um, had uh, sort of this dream of uh, reestablishing the Roman Empire. You, mm. you, your listeners have probably heard of the Holy Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. So the, the Holy Roman Empire is a is a kind of a, a medieval German. Um, uh, attempt to reestablish the universal the universal Roman Empire. Right. As sometimes it's called the Holy Roman Empire of the Germanies, and mm. uh, and so uh, the the Germans have this inheritance of uh, of a um, of an idea that Germany is uh, shouldn't be just an independent state like all others, but rather has a role of kind of uniting all of Europe and beyond that maybe the whole world. Um, so there's different versions of this, but of course the the most famous, the the most hideous version uh, is uh, is is the Nazi version, mm. and and sh and sure enough, um, you know when when Hitler talks about the Third Reich, you know he's talking he, for him the First Reich is the Holy Roman Empire, mm. and uh, and and so he, you know what what he calls nationalism is something that people from any of these other countries would usually call uh, biological imperialism. I mean, what, what does he write? Mein Kampf, not that I recommend people read it, but, mm -hmm. um, but, but I have read it. And, and uh, when Hitler talks about nationalism, he doesn't mean what we mean by nationalism. He means that Germany should, and this is explicit, should be uh, the Lord of the earth right. or the mistress of the globe. Mm -hmm. These are expressions that he uses directly, mm -hmm. and uh, so I, since I'm I'm not particularly interested in uh, in in learning political theory from from Hitler, mm -hmm. um, I, I prefer to <laughs> use the uh, the traditional biblical uh, un, uh, understanding of, the, of 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 this term, which is uh, a a world in which uh, different nations will have independence and they'll allow others to be independent. Uh, rather than seeking to dominate all. Right. So yours is not a philosophy of domination. Um, it, is a, it is a philosophy um, of sovereignty and nationhood. Um, and so my, um, I think my instinct from there is to ask you then, where does your uh, perspective find tension, uh, if it does, um, with sort of the traditional uh, uh, liberal conception of uh, America as a, the United States of America as a uh, civic and democratic um, project. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, you were preceded on this podcast by my friend, uh, the young uh, uh, Coleman Hughes. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, with, with Coleman. Sure. Yes, Coleman. Well, I haven't met him, but I've seen I, I've seen him. He talks real good. Well, I look forward to you two. I, having I like the, him. Yeah. Well, I look forward to the two of you having a chance to have a conversation at, at some point. Uh, and uh, but, you know, we were we were, uh, you know, covering uh uh, some adjacent territory. And we were just talking about the nature of uh, the United States as an experiment. And, and, and Coleman said to me the other day, as many others have said, that the United States of America is distinct because whereas other nations are founded upon a shared ethnic identity, the United States of America proceeds from an idea. And so, you know, I mean, we can make reference to sort of the Jeffersonian language and the declaration that, you know, all men are created equal and endowed with certain inalienable 
um, right? Um, but this idea that as an as an experiment uh, in in democracy, not to quibble with terms like you know democracy versus constitutional republic, et cetera, et cetera, but that this is a country that derives its essential identity from the fact that we are free peoples with equal standing who have the right uh, to speak freely, that we engage in uh, processes of reason filtered up through representative government that channel, however imperfectly, sort of a collective um, will, and that in so doing, we are able to affect a culture and a program of self-government, which doesn't necessarily require us to share uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, universal bonds of shared tradition, be they religious or otherwise, even if those things sort of, you know, inform the character of uh, individuals and individual groups of Americans within that larger sort of civic framework. And so, you know, I, I look at that as sort of, you know, kind of the uh, liberal appreciation of the nature of the American project. I think it's just sort of taken as common wisdom that that's what America, you know, is and rightfully ought to be. Um, but I do get the sense uh, that some folks, certainly within the conservative nationalist sort of, um, you know, umbrella, take a different uh view or critical of that in some way. So I would, I would love to know from you sort of, you know, uh, if you find, if, if you find, um, some, some tension, uh, within yourself towards that, um, towards that, uh, description of America. And if so, um, where that might be. Well, look, I, I've never been a liberal. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I, I've been a conservative, you know, since, since, uh, since I was a, a kid learning about politics from, from my father. Um, mm -hmm. so, I, and and I just very just very quickly, I, you would de therefore reject the idea that the conservatives uh, that 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 sort of you know the conservatives are the true liberals today, right? Because that's a common formulation that you you hear sometimes. That well, it's a, it's, a, it, it's a common formulation among liberals, but right. it's you know it's rejected yeah. by conservatives. It depends who you're talking about. Right, right, right. So mm -hmm. I, I um, uh, sorry about the the, the self promotion, but again, no, 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 please. Uh, I, I wrote a book called Conservatism, a Rediscovery, which mm -hmm. was published last year by Regnery. Mm -hmm. And uh, and again, I'll, I'll you know, I'll try to give you the uh, the, the quick version, but people want to see the, you know, the 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 argument in in detail and in depth with all the appropriate uh, footnotes. Please take a look at the book. Mm -hmm. So um, let let's just let's let's begin just I think. Um, by really quickly distinguishing, like what what am I talking about when I distinguish between liberalism and conservatism? So liberalism um, is uh, a, it's a family of views mm. uh, that uh, that begin politics with um, you know the, the the freedom of the individual. The 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 individual is born perfectly free. Mm. The individual is 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 born perfectly equal, or at least becomes so by the time he or she is uh, reaches the age of reason. Let's say at the age of twenty or eighteen or something like that. And and uh, liberals in general historically have also thought that that political and moral obligation is uh, you, you take it upon yourself by choice. Yeah. That uh, in you know in in some way the right way to do politics is. Uh, is only to obligate people uh, when when they agree to be obligated, and you know that makes it a philosophy that you know is 
is very, very, very focused on on the freedom of the the individual. Conservatism is, is is somewhat of a different story. First of all, liberalism is a universal theory, and and liberals generally claim that it not that that it applies in all times and places. That mm. it's you know sort of like objectively true. Uh, conservatism is a different story because it 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 begins with uh, the observation that there are many different nations, many different tribes, many different uh, religions in the world, uh, many ways to you know to 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 construct a family, and uh, and so conservatives I think are are a lot more skeptical about the idea that that there's obvious universal truths that apply everywhere, even though. You know our our conservative tradition is very biblical, and so so it certainly does recognize universal truth. But conservatives are very skeptical about uh, human beings using our reason, being able to get to the truth that applies to everybody. the The main thread of conservative thought is a is a view that asks the following question: I'm born into a certain family, into a certain you know, tribe or community into a certain nation, family of nations, religion. And, you know, of course, people, you know, some people do during their lives um, uh, leave their nation and join another. But the question is, uh, if you're going to stay in the nation in which you were born, which most people do, what are your obligations to that nation? Do you have obligations to uphold the laws? Do you have obligations to uphold the customs and uh, and and to give honor to the beliefs of the people uh, in, in among whom you grew up? The same kind of question with families. Uh, mm. Do you have obligations when you're born into a family? I mean, you'll you'll notice that there there's virtually no choice uh, about this in conservative thought. You know, honor your father, your mother. Well, you know, you didn't choose your parents. Mm. You don't choose the biblical obligation to honor them. That you're you're born into that obligation, and the same the same is is true for your nation. That you know, if your nation is attacked, a conservative will say, "There's no choice in this matter. You, as as a result of the fact that you grew up among this people, if 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 your family and your people are are, are under attack and under threat, you have an obligation to try to uh, to try to help them, and." And so, so conservatives are much more interested in what have we inherited from the past. Um, you know, how, how do we distinguish the good parts from you know sometimes the evil parts that have been inherited? But what if what's good about what we've inherited, and how do we strengthen it going forward? How do we make sure that the community that we're born into is uh, better off for our for our grandchildren than it was for our our, our, our grandparents? And this argument between um, uh, liberals and universal reason on the one hand, and conservatives who are much more traditional, this this argument splits the American founding uh, down the middle. I mean, mm. uh, you, you correctly quoted Jefferson. Jefferson and Payne are 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 the you know the most explicitly and uh, and and uh, uh, vehemently. Uh, liberal of the American founders, but the but the 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 liberals didn't write the American Constitution. Je Jefferson did write the Declaration of Independence, but the American Constitution was written by the Conservative Party, by which later later is called the Federalists. And if if you um, read what the leading Federalists, uh, Washington, John Jay, Hamilton, uh, Adams, 
Governor Morris, who is the the uh, uh, the principal author of the American Constitution, what what did these much more conservative American founders? How did they look at things? Well, I think you know, I I think that they they all would would agree that the American experiment uh, includes an openness uh, to uh, uh, toleration and uh, uh, d diversity of different kinds of ways of life. I, I, all of that is agreed to, but the foundation that you're describing is not agreed to. Uh, John Jay in Federalist Two describes uh, uh, America as a uh, as a, a people. A, a, a people that is uh, bound together by uh, by bonds of similar religion, similar national background, similar laws and traditions, uh, similar similar language. Mm. In other words, all the things that you know liberals like to say. Oh no, America's not that. If you actually start um, looking at at, at uh, the the uh, uh, the party that that came up with the the American Constitution and the reasons that it came up with this Constitution, uh, you you'll find that you know that it's very 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 similar to uh, to the way that um, uh, that the English think about their nation or the Scots or the French. Um, the, these are uh, or the Dutch. Uh, John Jay himself had, had a, a Dutch heritage, so there's a strong Dutch influence there. Mm. Um, so I, I think there's an argument about what the American experiment is and, and what's good for it. And uh, liberals and conservatives are not we're, we're very often not on the same side. Mm. And so j just to just to push just a little bit further on Please. that, uh, you know, James Madison, uh, of course, was uh, uh, was a Democratic Republican and a principal ally of Thomas, uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, certain certainly, uh, I think, uh, during during uh, uh, the later years, but he also was a very uh, was a very uh, uh, important voice in the drafting of the Constitution, particularly the Bill of Rights, of course, in the first first ten amendments. Now, perhaps he was responding in part to pressure from uh, you know from uh, Patrick Henry and and others to more sort of directly identify the liberal the the the, uh, the liberties of individuals. But nevertheless, uh, is it not the the case that there's a clear commitment? To individual rights, which perhaps we can see as sort of an expression of some some enlightenment heritage in the in the Constitution. Uh, your points about sort of the conservative influence on the Constitution, notwithstanding. Well, look, I I, I think that the the problem with talking about enlightenment influence hmm. um, is that it uh, it ignores the the inheritance that the that that. Uh, that Americans are, had from England, mm. you know. The, I, I mean, uh, this is a famous argument between Jefferson's party and and Washington's party over over whether the French Revolution um, is, you know, basically the same thing that that did happen and should happen in America, or or whether the American Revolution actually is more about adapting the traditional. Uh, English and British constitution to conditions in the United States. That, mm -hmm. that, that that's a theoretical argument that right. that divided those two parties. By the way, Madison himself is is an interesting character because uh, he was he was a uh, a Jeffersonian loyal loyalist until Jeff Jefferson goes to France, mm. um, and 
And as soon as Jefferson goes to France, he's there for five years, the uh, Madison swings over to being an ally of John Jay and mm. uh, and Hamilton and 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 Washington very close working very closely with Washington and then as soon as as soon as <laughs> Jefferson's back Madison swings back to to Jefferson it's the Jeffersonian then, center of gravity which kind of <laughs> yeah right so he's kind of yeah. like a planet orbiting e- either Washington or Jefferson but right. as you mentioned later in life Madison you know Madison starts to go go back again so he, he, he's a complicated uh, character, and I think you can, you know, uh, find all sorts of things in in Madison in general. He's much, much more uh, pragmatic than uh, th- th- than Jefferson was. Um, but to 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 go back to the um, this Enlightenment issue, what what I what I did in Conservatism a Rediscovery, I, I opened the book by um, uh, tracing the history of the ideas that we're, we're used to calling, you know, uh, enlightenment, rationalist, political ideas. And um, I, I, I take the uh, parts of the, the English common law tradition. I begin with a, 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 a famous common lawyer and political theorist named John Fortescue. Mm. Uh, at the end of the 1400s, now we're talking about the end of the Middle Ages, he writes a a short book called in, in Praise of the Laws of England. Mm. And every one of the American founders knew in Praise of the Laws of England. Mm. And when what you can get there's a you know there's a uh, an inexpensive Cambridge version. You can you can you can read it. The, the, the English has been, you know, the spelling's correct so you can easily read it. And when you open it, the first thing that you see is that it in the in the 1470s or 1480s, John Fortescue is talking about um, the 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 separation of powers and the the bicameral legislature and uh, uh, t- taxation and uh, and, and uh, legislation as being the the prerogatives of the prerogatives of the legislature in order to balance the executive mm-hmm. and, and and he it, he goes on and on into this uh, the jury trial is is one of his major themes what why is england freer than any nation in europe mm. and he, a lot of it he says is because of the jury trial but in part he says it's because of uh, because of our traditional uh, legal concern for private property the fact that that our king is not allowed to enter the home of any farmer mm. without the farmer's permission much less to to expropriate things so he he directly connects uh, English liberties to um, uh, to 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 the common law inheritance, but especially the protections of uh, of private property. And look, we could just go on and on. Right. The right. the 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 American uh, Conservative Party um, was well aware that these are the inherited forms of uh, of the English, mm. and um, and at, you know at the same time. Um, they uh, they also knew that America is different. America mm. has no king. America has no um, no aristocracy. Mm-hmm. It never did. And so um, so a large part of what's happening is that over 150 years, uh, the Americans, while st- while while embracing the you know the English common law, they applied it in. Uh, in New England and in the central states and in the southern states in different ways and adapted it to the different conditions so that um, what what they are um, uh, thinking of when they 
when they write the constitution is they're thinking both about the traditional English constitution, but also about the way that it had been adopted adapted to, mm-hmm. to American conditions over 150 years. But they see themselves as traditionalists. And they and now if you ask about Madison's Bill of Rights, you know, that Bill of Rights, um, if, if you dig into Patrick Henry, mm-hmm. you'll see that that he thinks that those are the rights of Englishmen. Mm, it, what, sure. the, the, the rights in the Bill of Rights, they're in the Petition of Right that was written by John, John Selden, and they're, they're, they're in the, 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 uh, the, the English Bill of Rights 100 years before they're in, in the American Bill of Rights. Mm. Uh, you know, so you can, you can claim, like Jefferson does, that, well, you know, we're exercising human reason, universal reason, and anybody c- could come up with this if he just thought about it. But it isn't actually true. Mm. Well, and I promise that this is the last question in this direction. And well, and this one is an admittedly unfair question, but I just want to I just want to throw it at you for you to play with just very, just very quickly. Um, is was the Revolutionary War a conservative act um, there? Uh, therefore, this is an uh, I mean, it's an unfair question. Yeah, it's, but it's, but it's, just, point it's it, one yeah. of those old chestnuts. It just, sure. you know, people argue about this, you know, endlessly. And we're not going to sure. settle it here today. But sure. the 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 um, the conservative view of it uh, is that um, that the American Revolution was similar to the uh, glorious revolution in England mm-hmm. in that the, the the people doing it believed that what they were doing was not, you know, out of, you know, pure universal reason coming up with the true constitution, mm. the people doing it thought that they were restoring the previous constitution that had, that, that had been abrogated. Right. Um, that, you know, and even, even Jefferson, I mean, in the Declaration of Independence, uh, other than two or three lines, most of it is in, is in those terms saying, right. look, um, we we know what rights we've inherited, but the problem is that those traditional rights of Englishmen are being abrogated uh, by the by the King of England, and uh, I you know I I would I would take that actually seriously because because if you uh, if you look at certain experiments during the American Revolution, experiments in like inventing a wholly new constitution on the basis of reason, there were such experiments. The uh, the Constitution of Pennsylvania Mm. from 1777 and uh, other constitutional experiments in Georgia and in Vermont. Uh, And and you could also see the Articles of the Confederation. These These are all documents that were based on reasoning completely from scratch and inventing mm. a new constitution. Right. And they, they look in a lot of ways, they look like the French Revolution. Mm. And the uh what what happens is that that the the chaos and violence, especially uh, in in Pennsylvania, under the revolutionary constitution, is it is so frightening and so um I mean it's really almost like a like a, a a trial run for then for, for what happens in in France later on, just a few years later, and the the constant the conservative party comes together to create the American Constitution in significant degree because of what they what they believed was what, what was the, the 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 chaos and the violence 
that came of trying to come up with an Enlightenment constitution on the basis of pure reason. Hmm. And and Washington is very clear in this. He's all through the the war, you know, but certainly by the middle of the war of independence, he, he he thinks he's writing circular letters to anyone who listened, saying we need a constitution like the one in England, mm. uh, and and uh, nothing short of that is is going to be able to save this country. Mm. Indeed, I, I find a, a fair uh, a fair amount uh, uh, to to sympathize with you uh, about on your with respect to your analysis here. Um, let me ask you. Uh, let me ask you a different question, uh, and let me set it up in this way. Um, I uh, uh, not too long ago. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but I um, gave a speech to the uh, to the Acton Institute, um, sort of identifying what I felt to be uh, sort of the um, what some folks might consider to be sort of the unlikely convergence of, of first principles that I at least identify as existing between Martin Luther King Jr. and Russell Kirk, uh, individuals who you can look at as essentially having sort of seeded both the the sort of the nonviolent civil rights movement, of course, and uh, the the conservative movement, both coming out of the um, you know sort of mid twentieth century, nineteen sixties. And um, starting with the fact that they each believed in an ordered universe and the idea that there is that there is a creator and that from the mind of this creator, we have the flow of history and the imperative uh, for for uh, for moral moral justice. Um, uh, One thing, one concern that they both uh, shared was that the um, the progress of society and and. You know, maybe maybe there needs to be an asterisk on that term, but that the progress of society um, materially had sort of uh, resulted in a hollowing out um, of sort of the 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 the, um, the deeper resources of the human soul on some level that we were finding ourselves entering into an interconnected world through commerce and and. Um, you know, certainly the the wealth produced by capitalism, but that to the extent to which our values were becoming values based in consumption, values based in the acquisition of material goods, both King and Kirk saw that as something of a threat to the deeper sort of reservoir of human fulfillment that could be found with finding our place essentially in God's design. Now, their their politics were starkly opposite, and yet I saw them as both proceeding from this larger starting point and this sort of moral concern for the sort of sameness that was being foisted upon us by losing sight of our traditions and our spiritual connections in favor of just sort of consuming the the kind of material wealth of the world. And I'm wondering if there's some degree to which um, your understanding of conservatism or conservative nationalism itself is in part at least uh, a reaction to that phenomenon in in history and certainly in modern life well look I, I I have not seen I have not seen your speech but if you send it to me I I will definitely look at it yeah uh, my you know my inclination just on the basis of what you you've said now is to is to think yeah you're 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 onto something I mean I mm. I basically agree with everything you said I think mm. um I I think that what people often miss is that you know that uh, although King tilted tilted left and and uh, Kirk tilted right, but but both of them are they're biblical thinkers. Yeah, 
uh, both of them are um, are very concerned with uh, with the teachings, you know, not just of Christian scripture generally, but as, but especially of the Old Testament, mm. uh, which which is you know you, you don't always find that in to, to say the least in 20th century thinkers. So mm. those those uh, intellectual and spiritual figures. Uh, who remain connected to the American biblical inheritance? Uh, they they sound very different from uh, from from people who are talking, you know, just about the 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 rule of pure reason and 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 you know the the universal power of the human brain. Uh, it's a it, it it it's a look. What, what, what can you say? Christianity is uh, is not liberalism. Uh, and 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 both both Christianity and Judaism, when if you know if taken seriously, they uh, they lead you to a to a very different uh, anthropology, a different way of looking at human beings and human nature and what human potential is and what fulfills human beings. I, I'm completely with you on this. Mm. Well, let me use that as a further doorway then into perhaps an even uh, deeper um, deeper part of this, which is that. And let me let me speak from my own vantage point here. Um, you know, I'm somebody who tends to, I think, lament the fact that, at least in my own, at least in my own uh, uh, estimation, um, I sort of see there as being a couple sort of largely predominating um, moral uh, sort of frameworks for for moral. Um, moral understanding through which we operate in modern society. I see them as sort of competing and arm wrestling with each other. And yet each of them sort of leading us astray in some sense. On the one hand, I see sort of a a utilitarian or consequentialist way of looking at the world, which I I, I roughly sort of, you know, think of as, as sort of a, a strain of what we get from the enlightenment where we, you know, the embrace of pure reason, which says that, well, you know, we can tell a thing is good by virtue of its sort of material impacts and consequences. And if we, you know, crunch the numbers and are able to sort of see where the GDP winds up, you know, following and following and this, that or the other, if we can graduate enough folks from college, we know that a policy is good or a thing is good. And really, these are matters of calculations. Then on the other hand, and I'm being obviously very, very simplistic here. Um, on the other hand, I see there as being a a way of engaging tradition um which can strike me as sort of you know sort of sort of you know deontological or, or dogmatic to be slightly pejorative that we can say well you know this thing is right because you know my grandparents my grandparents grandparents said it was right you know this is my religion this is my tradition these are the rules of it and i don't really need to look or pay attention to too much of anything else in the way of new information. I know if I have this allegiance and just stick to it, that everything is going to be well for me and, and, you know, sort of world be world be damned. If there are any contrary points of evidence. Um, I think that what I believe in is um, I do believe in the, the power of reason. And I also believe in the value of tradition, but I think what anchors me more deeply is a belief um, in, in virtue Um the idea that there are components to the human career, uh, character uh, derived from essential truths of the human soul that you cannot 
you know, at least from my vantage point, you cannot fully appreciate without having some appreciation for man's relationship to God and how that expresses itself in tradition. But that that also shines a light on, you know, sort of the the, the proper use of, of of reason and how we can contextualize reason within a larger sort of understanding of the human soul and how it how it relates to some greater design. And so in, in arguing that there are some similarities between Dr. King and Russell Kirk, part of what I seized upon uh, was this sort of idea that, to, to my mind, uh, in some deep and meaningful way, both men were sort of virtue ethicists. You know, I mean, Dr. King, uh, the, the philosophy of nonviolence was rooted in this idea um, that agape love or goodwill uh, sort of a spiritual power that could affect social transformation and that that's expressed in the way we behave. That's expressed in sort of the character that we cultivate in ourselves, an unwillingness to think uh, evilly uh, about other people, even as we summon the courage to confront evil by speaking words of truth. And of course, you know, conservatism, as Russell Kirk uh, described it, is uh, is a cast of of mind. Uh, Russell Kirk uh, attributed, you know, conservative uh, qualities to people as philosophically different as, you know, John Adams to, you know, John Randolph, uh, people whose policies probably, you know, uh, or Alexander Hamilton to John Randolph, for that matter, people whose policies and political instincts were starkly different, but who, uh, but who em- embodied prudence, who embodied wisdom in, in different ways. Um, it seems to me that virtue, that if we have some sense of what it means to embody traits like wisdom, like prudence, like like goodwill and love and courage, that these things are, they can only really f- blossom out of the soil of an understanding of, of ancient truth and, and, and tradition, right? Because that's what cultivates it over time. That's how I see the sort of hand of God is tilling the soil over time. But that also sort of the fruits of that to me are are reason rightly understood, the application of of what we understand uh, to, uh, the truths of 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 life and history to be uh, sort of applied, you know, through through prudence, through wisdom, um, with courage, with goodwill to the actual living and evolving problems of the present moment. And so I fear for a world and a society in which we have ideological arguments that sort of, you know, sort of pit reason uh, uh, and tradition or let's say, you know, maybe ideology and dogma sort of against each other without them being anchored in the middle by an understanding of virtue, by, by a sense of, you know, what the what the PowerPoints are within the human soul that allow us to make the best of both of these things. And I feel like in so much of our contemporary discourse, and not just contemporarily, but for a very long time now, uh, we haven't had much of a language for for virtue. We haven't had much of a discourse around virtue. And so we gravitate towards people who seem really smart on the one hand or really strong on the other hand in terms of political leaders and intellectuals and so forth. But we lose our capacity to fully realize ourselves as good men and women with a stronger sort of sense of what goes into that, right? Because uh, we are gravitating towards towards smarts and formulas on, on, on the poles, but not living out the spiritual existence of cultivating ourselves in terms of developing our characters, right? And so that's 
that, that that's kind of been my way of of assessing kind of where we are you know in 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 modern society and what we're lacking in our moral conversation and and how that detracts from the larger kind of political and social conversation and so i i offer that to you as a window into my own thinking uh with the following question uh do you have um uh, a particular um you know particular thoughts about um about sort of you know the need or lack thereof for a virtue ethos uh in our contemporary discourse and whether one is a liberal or a conservative you know is there a, a space that may need to be widened for that area of contemplation that 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 may serve some positive connecting function in between i'm inclined i'm inclined to agree i mean th- there's you're definitely right that that um dogmatic thinking you know a a, a rigid adherence to uh to certain principles without paying much attention to the question of you know what are the limits of these these principles and how do we ban- balance them against one another uh, that that that's an evil that exists you know it it exists on the left it it exists on the right mm-hmm. it, these days i mean we i i think we've in our generation we've gotten to see that there's even such a thing as a you know as a centrist uh, dogmatism. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. w- where, you know, mm-hmm. p- people, you find it difficult to talk to people. I mean, they, they, they are sitting in the center of the political map, but, you know, but they can also be fanatically, you know, close-minded about having compromise or balancing things. The close-minded um, center is a real thing. It's real. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Certainly, my Orthodox Jewish tradition, it, its virtue, the, the virtues that it cherishes, are, are slightly different than Christian virtues, and both of those are, in a lot of ways, very different from Aristotelian virtues, mm-hmm. which are which are pagan virtues. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I definitely agree that uh, that the the search for virtue in education and in the way we lead our public life. It's it's absolutely dead center the the way we want to be thinking about uh, the kind of life that we're we're leading. I I I would just say that some some of the academic uh, virtue theorists um, are seem to me to be not sufficiently aware of the fact mm. that um, that that pursuing virtue is not the same as uh, as as knowing the substance of of morality and justice, those, those are not identical things. Mm. They're related, but they're not identical. So, I mean, uh, Aristotle is is the is the number one virtue thinker that that people are you know tend to quote. The problem sure. is that Aristotle, of course, thought that that uh, that a child who was born with a deformity or in in some other way. Um, uh, in a, it's undesirable to to uh, his or her parents mm-hmm. uh, could just be left on a mountaintop to to, to die of exposure, sure. and mm-hmm. it, you know it's it's only from the Bible that Jews and Christians get things like the the value of the sanctity of every human life. Mm-hmm. There, that's that's not something you can get from the Greeks, mm-hmm. and um, and so I think. I think we need both. I think we 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 have to be very clear about what our biblical inheritance is and how it sets boundaries 
um, as to what's right and wrong. And uh, the the virtues, of course, are, you know, th that's one of the central ways that, that we learn to be uh, strong men and women uh, fighting for what's right. Mm. Indeed. Well, then, what aids you engaging in dialogue and perhaps shared civic interaction uh, with people who exist perhaps well outside of the Judeo-Christian religion, and, or, 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 or I should say Judeo-Christian tradition, and um, to just further set that up a bit. I feel like I hear you loud and clear uh, when you say that um, yours is a nationalism uh, embracing of the sovereignty and independence of nations, and that furthermore, there's a danger to the interconnectedness, to, the, to sort of the hyper-interconnectedness that has been facilitated by sort of, you know, the, the, the rush towards a global order politically, uh, economically, commercially. Um, I tend to look at even sort of the, much of the social justice uh, movement, the modern social justice movement uh, on the left. And, and you know, you, you hear much in the way of, you know, people, particularly many people of color and so forth, sort of sort of elevating a dialogue over, you know, let's honor our, honor our ancestors. Let's sort of lean into sort of our cultural and ethnic sort of affinities. And that's, that's worrisome to many liberals and sort of, I think, liberal conservatives, so to speak, alike, who feel that this is a rejection of sort of the, the kind of colorblind ethos of American liberalism. But I think one charitable way to look at that is to say that, well, you know, I think that a lot of people, you know, left and right uh, are somewhat rejecting of a, a, a homogenizing, even through multiculturalist orthodoxy, but a homogenizing, you know, of their own identities in favor of some universalism, whereas what they, what they also want or what they want more is to be in touch with their own lineages, their own traditions. And that doesn't yeah. necessarily have to mean hostility towards other groups. But I would pose a similar question to them, though, because we do live certainly in the United States of America, more broadly, in a world, in a country, in a world where it just seems necessary to be able to interact with people who exist well outside of our own, of our own immediate uh, lineages and traditions. Um, what aids us in doing that? What can aid us in, in doing that? If you have to share a country or if you have to share you know, uh, institutional space or what have you, you know, with somebody, you know, who's, uh, who's a Marxist, who's an atheist, potentially, you know, uh, somebody who is um, someone who's a Muslim and very much um, committed to that. I think my hope is lied in the idea that, you know, on some level, and I hear what you say about the distinctions between Aristotelian virtue and Christian Judeo-Christian virtue and the distinction between, you know, virtue in the Jewish and Christian context. Uh, I'm actually with you on all those on all those points, although, you know, we'll have another conversation, I hope, to where we can okay. dig into some of those details a bit more. Um, nevertheless, I would like to think that truth ultimately is is transcendent, ultimately, you know, and that, you know, somehow or other, there are resources in the in the human spirit that can allow us to develop a meaningful and profitable human connection, even across a fairly wide gulf in in traditions. Maybe there's a limit to that, but um, but I, I, I place some faith in the idea 
that, you know, some of the raw virtues of goodwill, the raw, particularly the raw virtue of goodwill can help us, you know, forge some, some bonds and capacity for shared, you know, shared government and civic life uh, across some of those divides. I'm wondering if there's anything that, that aids you in that project, or if that's something that, that you uh, may find yourself to be a, a little less, a little less hopeful for at scale and in the long run. Being able to get along with people in in a given society with different kinds of people, I mean it 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 is a fundamental it's a fundamental natural aim of politics. Right. I mean, the, uh, uh, every society has its uh, has its dominant traditions, and every society has minorities. I mean, the, mm. there's no there's no such thing anywhere in history as a, as an actually homogenous nation every nation is internally diverse mm. and in in fact an awful lot of the uh, uh of the the old testament the hebrew bible is about the the problem of making uh how you get to peace and justice among competing tribes that are very different from one another mm. uh so th- this is a it, it's an old old problem right. uh one of the um, one of the strong political and moral impulses that we get through through scripture is the idea that uh, that the brothers killing Joseph uh, is some kind of you know vast evil, mm-hmm. or they're selling him to. They originally were talking about killing him. Selling him to slavery is an extraordinary evil that brothers, you know that that. The 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 idea that the different different groups within a nation are at some level brothers that's also a biblical idea, but I don't you know I I don't want to be too too naive about it because the um, the competition among the different different tribes and parts of a nation um, and and when I say a nation by the way I mean mm. like just like a family can adopt. Uh, new members or a tribe can adopt new f- f- families that are new. The same thing is true of nations. Nations are capable and often do in history um, uh, uh, adopt new tribal groups in, into the nation. That's not like a uh, like a modern thing. That, that's right. been going on in history forever. But I don't want to be too naive about this because uh, groups of human beings um, have the capacity to um, to feel like they're they're honored and they're recognized and they're part of the coalition and 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 to be totally loyal to it even if they're very different and to be loyal to one another that's possible. Another possibility is that that um, that a, a group a, a, a smaller group seems threatening to a larger group and uh, and instead of uh, finding a, an, an appropriate compromise that makes both sides happy, um, it, it it leads to to violence and to 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 hatred and to destruction. There's no there, there is no formula for how to prevent that from happening. But uh, it's you know it's it, it's very easy to be uh, tolerant of uh, of a minority when you know, when that minority group is relatively small and weak and, and isn't threatening anything. Mm. And uh, the larger the, and more cohesive the minority becomes, 
the more threatening it is to you know to to to, to people in power and and it just gets harder and harder to be to to be tolerant and just and to unify everybody so you know america is um uh in in a period right now of increasing tribalism increasing tribal hatred it's it's really you know the distrust between the different groups it's gotten to you know to the point where it seems like every every election doesn't matter who wins there's somebody on the other other side saying that it was rigged and it uh, it was stolen yeah uh, you know and a, a country can't survive that way indefinitely uh, e- either uh you you can find a way to to um compromise on certain ground rules and to have a degree of mutual respect uh, that that mutual loyalty can be built on either that or or you'll you'll end up with civil war and and uh one side winning by force mm. so um look for sure our uh our our aim as uh Jews and Christians and uh heirs to the biblical tradition is uh is to find a way to peaceably uh, accommodate people who are very different from us but i but i also think that there are limits to what you know to what is possible and i i, I want to be realistic about this you, you know some sometimes um when i'm talking to um when i when i'm talking to uh, liberals not to speak of marxists i mean i i feel like they're incredibly uh, naive uh, about i mean often they don't even recognize they're not even willing to recognize that there is such a thing as uh, human loyalty groups and competition among the different tribes. It, it, you know, in some ways, it's easier to talk to Marxists because you know th- they want to overthrow you know the dominant mm-hmm. tribe. But at least, mm-hmm. at least you know, sociologically, they, they're willing to admit that there is such a thing as competing tribes and the possibility of um, uh, of oppression whereas often liberals are not even willing to to admit that that exists so that that brings me back to your point about colorblindness that you know i i'm you you can you you'll see if you if you take a look at my my books that i'm 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 super sympathetic to uh you know to the 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 post world war 2 american uh, impulse that the you know this this war was fought against um, uh, against uh, German racism mm-hmm. and uh, and and what are we doing persecuting blacks back home in our own country we need to we need to find a way to 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 put an end to that mm-hmm. so you know on the one hand I'm I'm super sympathetic to that on on the other hand I I don't I don't I'm not completely sure that colorblindness has resolved all of the uh, all all of the issues the way it was supposed to, mm. and one of the reasons that I say this is because you know as a um, si- si- since I'm 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 Jewish I'm an Orthodox Jew, and yeah. I I you know to me it's very very clear the way that uh, religious Jews uh, have a a common bond uh, within the community a common um, uh, loyalty and tradition kind of a fellow feeling and also common interests. Um, and you know, when, when, when I, um, uh, get to have off the record conversations with, uh, uh, with, with, uh, representatives of the black community, mm-hmm. a lot of the time, what I feel like I'm hearing 
is is a lot is very similar to you know what what's familiar to me from religious Jews. Mm-hmm. We in the black people will tell me you know in the black community we we have our own traditions, we have our own interests, and it's not enough that you know that you know that I can get a job at Gold, Goldman Sachs competing against you know against yeah. against a white guy because yeah. as a community we also want to be. Uh, respected and recognized for who we are without being forced to, you know, assimilate a hundred percent into this kind of homogenous liberal world. Mm. And uh, I, I'm not sure that, that liberals hear that um, need as much as they should. I, I consider that to be an apt observation. And it's funny because for myself, I'm very much a product just in my own life of a multicultural liberalism. You know, I come from, you know, a, a, a racially and ethnically mixed household and family. I grew up in a multicultural sort of progressive community. I, I'm very at home in that kind of environment. And yet I think I, I, I think, however, in coming from a family where the different branches of my family extend into communities that are more rooted in their community identity. I think I also sort of experience that multicultural space as being one thing among other things, but not necessarily the universal thing that it sort of sees itself as, if that makes some, some sense. And I think that part of what we're reckoning with here is the fact that I think that there is something of a liberal center in mainstream American life. And when I say liberal center, I'm talking about Democrats and Republicans, you know, self-styled liberals and conservatives who nevertheless sort of hold to this sort of essential formulation. And I think that they are surprised to find themselves under something of a two-pronged sort of, you know, uh, you know, critique against some of those foundational assumptions from both the right and the left essentially encapsulated in what it is you just articulated, you know, your conversation with people in the black community and finding that, you know, I mean, even among, you know, black folks who are not just like left, but even radically. So in many cases, you know, um, that there is this sort of similar kind of response kind of against uh, some of those, some of those um, formulations that have been so intrinsic to kind of the the liberal mentality for so long. And of course, you know, one thing, I I don't know if you know this, um, but, uh, you know, Jeff Nelson at the Russell Kirk Center, Russell Kirk's son-in-law, a good friend of mine, uh, sort of turned me on to this. But, you know, Russell Kirk and Malcolm X uh, met and had a a conversation, Mm -hmm. had a brief, uh, but apparently fairly impactful uh, interaction with each other. I did. I I was not aware of that. That's fascinating. I I will send you... uh, uh, an article that Russell Kirk wrote, uh, essentially eulogizing Malcolm X after he was assassinated, you know, and, um, obviously the differences between those two men, uh, to say nothing of Kirk and King, but the difference between those two men and their politics was stark. And yet there are ways in which Kirk and Malcolm probably had more in common than even, you know, Kirk and King might've had or King and Malcolm for that, for that matter. Um, because, you know, Malcolm was a man who b- believed in, in nationhood in, in the tribal sense and so forth. Um, right. and, uh, a, and sovereignty was something that mattered a, a great deal to Malcolm. And in any event, you know, it's just it's it's a little bit it's a little bit funny to me uh, because 
you know, there is, I think, a, a deep-seated human need um, for for community to be in touch with tradition, and I feel like we can we can only satiate that through sort of consumption and kind of the raw output of you know our self-satisfaction with our own intellects and so forth for so so long. But I think my hope would be that I don't know that we can establish a, a context in which we can communicate sort of civilly and amicably, you know, across this sort of rather far-flung and disparate sort of political differences that exist between people who might also be in the grips of a similar sort of spiritual hunger in some sense in a political context so that we can actually move things forward. And I guess a way of simplifying that would be simply to say that I would love to get to a point where, you know, MAGA folks and BLM folks could actually see what they have in common, to put it sort of of simply and sort of bluntly here. As, as big as the universe of differences are between them. And, you know, while also upholding that, which is good, and I think that there's an awful lot that is good, uh, in that sort of traditional kind of liberal orientation sort of in, in the center there. And so in any event, I consider that to be uh, something of the Brave Angels project. And maybe you and I can get a little deeper into that uh, next time we have the good fortune to, <laughs> to jump on the line. Yoram Hazoni, thank you so much for joining us on Uniting America. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Uniting America. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating, review, or suggestions. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and tune in for more content. And learn more about the movement to depolarize America at braverangels.org.